1: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Republica's Dara Lind and Vox's own Herman Lopez. Um, we wanted to talk today about the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which is not over, we should clarify to say, but I think as a U.S. domestic issue, the policy response to COVID is sort of over at this point. And... You know, and I think it's an opportunity to look back at sort of what happened over the past 12 to 18 months and think about um, how we did. Uh, It it seems to me that most people, whether they're on the right or on the left, have some kind of very negative um, affect toward not just toward the pandemic, which obviously was bad (laughs) and we wish it hadn't happened, um, but toward the policy response to the pandemic. And yet, we haven't seen something like, um, after 9-11, like there was a big commission and it issued some recommendations on you know, what we should have done better to prevent mass casualty terrorist attacks. Uh, after the financial crisis, we didn't have that kind of blue ribbon commission. But Democrats in Congress wrote a bill that became uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, and it was supposed to be there. It was a partisan take, but it was like their take on like, what we had learned from this and what we were going to do in the future. It's something that's interesting to me about the COVID situation is that we have a lot of like negativity, a lot of bad feelings, a lot of criticisms and a lot of kind of takes in the media and in politics, but we don't have either like a bipartisan high-minded effort to say like, here's what went wrong. And we also don't have like a partisan Ideological effort to say, okay, here's how we're gonna fix everything. Um, it seems it seems weird to me uh, because at least I I feel like I've been alive uh, this time, and you know, even without pointing fingers or blaming anyone or being too harsh, like not everything that we did worked out that well, and it seems like we could do better.
0: I mean, I'd even go a little further and say that the the extent to which the it is fair to say that the COVID-19 pandemic is over in the U.S. has become a like that whether the truth of that descriptive statement has become a debate by people who like really want to be debating the policy response. Right. Like the among the kind of I would say uh, COVID response hawks who have been throughout the pandemic urging for more aggressive lockdown measures and who have been, the, you know, the people who have been more cautious about what vaccinated people should do, what states and localities should do as vaccination rates increase. You know, that's because the I, the idea that the pandemic is not over has become the response to decreasing lockdowns instead of actually what what it what it's really saying is the policy, res- we have not yet hit the point where the policy response should be a non-crisis policy response. And there, those, I think, are kind of the two, that's like the, the main underlying question that even rests below the what should the response be, right, is at what point is it fair to step into a crisis footing? How long can you expect people to be in that crisis footing? And when you're devising, your like, here is the policy mode that we slip into in terms of in times of crisis. What is the goal of that policy mode?
2: I think another thing that's interesting to me, too, is when we're talking about who who did poorly, who did badly. I mean, basically, almost everybody in the u.s did poorly which is like like this has been framed in large part as a partisan issue but if you look at the numbers from like some of the democratic states uh and and not just like new york who which was hit hard early but like california did not do particularly great compared to the rest of the world in terms of handling covid um and the states that did do well like we're, we're talking about like Uh, Vermont, which has a Republican governor, but they're mostly Democratic uh, otherwise, and then Hawaii, which is Democratic, like, it's, it's just there's there's really no there's there's some signs that like states that were a little stricter, probably did a little better in on the average. But when you look at the the, the failures here, I think what's really striking is that there's plenty of room for both parties to say, like, look, there's plenty we could have improved here. There's something like our policy approaches weren't working exactly as planned here. Uh, and and I mean, that should, I think, to Matt's point, like lead to a bit of reflection as to what can improve for the next pandemic. But we're, we're just not seeing much of that yet.
0: Right. And instead, what we're seeing is a kind of uh, a reflection on human nature, right, where it seems like the lesson that many people have taken away, again, like people who are more haw- who were more hawkish on lockdown, is that human beings cannot be trusted to look out for their fellow man, which is kind of waving a white flag on policy, right? It's, it's either implicitly assuming that no lockdown strategy could possibly work Or just kind of caving on, well, we shouldn't even try aggressive lockdowns because there will be people who don't think that that's a good idea. And actually having the conversation about was a lockdown, you know, to what extent did we pursue a lockdown strategy? Was that the right one? Where did that get undermined? And what were both the like political and, you know, policy barriers to what we said were the goals of it? Is the conversation that should be preceding the, oh, well, I can't trust my fellow man to look out for me. So I guess I've just learned the humanity sucks lesson that it seems some people have taken away.
1: Well, so this is where sort of I I would start this, right? If, If I if I got to chair the commission and I would say you have to ask questions on two levels, right? One is what playbook should we try to run? And the other is how good were we at running the playbook? And I think that a lot of ill will – no, I don't want to say – I don't think that this has been harmful to people in the sense of causing them to get sick or or causing um, illness. But I think like psychic harm and damage to American society's ability to reflect and understand has been done by a – goalpost shifting and sort of communications breakdown that happened last April and May, um, where, you know, if you go back and read coverage in the New York Times or Vox, you know, establishment-y media outlets in March and April, um, there was all this stuff about how we have to flatten the curve, Right, and it was you know it was citing the CDC, it was citing leading epidemiologists. This was not like people freelancing. It was um, pro-social public health journalists trying to echo their understanding of what the public health community's understanding of what the pandemic playbook was. Right, and and you can read the stories. They say that we are not going to reduce the aggregate quantity of people who get infected with the disease. Right, they say that what we are going to do is prevent infection loads from becoming so high that it crushes healthcare system capacity. Then there was like a follow up. Um, Eliza Barclay and, and Dylan uh, Scott for Vox did a good one on how we need to raise the line as well as flatten the curve. You know, which is say invest in our healthcare systems capacity to to treat people. And I think that that philosophy carry that what. The, the experts, I will say, said in spring 2020 characterizes pretty well what the red states did. Right. And so but it's not what the blue states did. And they wound up being a kind of an odd breakdown. And if you look at something like if you look at Greg Abbott's uh, executive order, lifting mask and capacity restrictions in Texas, what he says is that a high percentage of Texas senior citizens have been vaccinated. He says that Texas hospital capacity is very high. And he says that county judges, which is what they call a county commissioner in Texas, will be able to reimpose these restrictions if hospital utilization hits certain kinds of thresholds, right? So if you ignored everything that happened between April 2020 and April 2021, Greg Abbott was like reading New York Times articles, quoting epidemiological (laughs) experts, and doing exactly what they said he should do. But what happened was that during the hard lockdown of April 2020, I think most experts came to decide that we should actually be doing something other than that. That instead of running the US pandemic playbook, we ought to run the Taiwan pandemic playbook. But there was never a buy-in on that, right? I mean, like you can can say what you will about Donald J. Trump, um, but he was in fact the president of the United States and he was not persuaded, right, that we should switch to this other playbook. And I think it created a situation where we feel, a lot of people feel like we failed, but like we didn't fail in terms of the goals that were set out, right? I mean, New York City and the greater New York area has just still by far the highest death toll. Right. Like the reason doing like red state, blue state math and stuff gets messed up is that that far and away, the highest casualty rates are just that initial pandemic wave where hospital capacity was overwhelmed and the case fatality rate surged. Right. Then I think there's a case that South Dakota, which was like Christy Noem was being hyper irresponsible, like showily irresponsible. And they seem to have gone sort of over the line at points. But Other states, including ones that have been very loosey-goosey, that didn't really happen. Seniors said, you know, they they had time. Seniors were relatively cautious. Healthcare institutions did good investment management protocols. Um, The problem is that hundreds of thousands of people died. But, like, it's exactly the strategy, as far as I can tell, that the playbook called for. And the question we should be asking is, like, should we write a new playbook for next time? But we're not we're not like having that dialogue in a constructive way.
0: I mean, I would actually like, I would, I would also, I think, want um Herman's read on this as someone who was, you know, also following the kind of dual evolution of the epidemiology and policy responses. Like, do you think that Matt's broadly correct about like which playbook we which playbook was? getting run and, you know, because that, that I think is, you know, as, as Matt said, like part of the, the needed uh, analysis here. And especially if the playbook that was in practice getting run wasn't what people were, who were really following this issue were understanding at the time, it's probably useful to kind to really slow down and, and draw that out some.
2: Yeah. So I think on, on average, Matt is right in that, like we were doing, I think as a country, we were generally aiming for flatten the curve. Um, I think where that gets complicated is sometimes, I mean, you listen to what Trump is saying, and obviously Trump has not, was not the most eloquent person on COVID. So it's like really hard to say if he was following any specific strategy. But I think if you look at red states, that's true. I mean, the, the moment that Texas, for example, did actually impose a mask mandate and did impose social distancing requirements last summer was when there were news reports of hospitals starting to get overrun at the local level. So that was his, that seemed to be Texas's big concern. Another area where I think this gets more complicated, though, is blue states did kind of seem to like take this like almost like schizophrenic approach in terms of they would like switch between flatten the curve uh, during better times and then like truly suppressing cases during worst times and like you would see this switch back and forth because i think they would freak out that they were seeing a lot of deaths during like the worst times during some point in the summer and later in the fall and then they would try to like go like no 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 we're trying to suppress cases now we have to make sure that we 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 drive these cases as close to zero as possible and you kind of saw that in between where where even blue state saw a high number of cases for a long time but um Yeah, I I think what makes this complicated is as Matt is saying is if you go back and read our like, the pandemic playbook that the that the Obama administration left behind, for example, it has a lot of stuff that we've we've all we all know about now. It's like social distancing, use PPE and masks if applicable, and on and on and on what the playbook is less clear about is what the goal of all these policies is. Like, whether the goal is to flatten the curve or suppress cases and drive them down to zero. And I think that's really, like, the original sin here is, like, the country never really agreed to this. I mean, there were takes by, like, Matt included and others that were just, like, flatten the curve isn't good enough. And, like, we just, as a country, we just never really moved past that. And I think more people over time realize maybe flying the curve isn't good enough, as we saw hundreds of thousands of debts tally up. But we just never came to an agreement, any sort of consensus, especially uh, between blue and red states, as to what the goal should be. And I think we should start seriously looking at like for the next pandemic, what is the goal? What is the death toll that we're essentially willing to accept here? Or what are the goals that we're, we're trying to reach?
0: And I think that this would actually be important even if there was a consistent trend of like, states that did xy and z did substantially better than states that did ab and c right because one of the big things we've learned out of this pandemic is that when you're asking for thing for Behavior changes, like whether that's states mandating lockdown policies, because you're then still relying on a certain amount of individual compliance. Uh, you're, you know, you're just not going to, like, logistically, it's not going to work to say we're going to put you in congregate housing, i.e., jail, if you disobey these social distancing mandates. Um, but you know, but even beyond that, just like the the idea that whether or not there are lockdowns in place, you're expected to be responsible for not only your well-being but the well-being of others like we've seen the that that the willingness to comply with that seems to be very closely linked to you know psychological expectations about how long this is going to go on and like a point that you know we've made on this podcast over and over again is that like as long as this has dragged on and as many waves of, like, COVID as a partisan phenomenon we've had, the very first wave in spring 2020 didn't have that kind of partisan polarization and had a great deal of voluntarist buy-in that then wasn't repaid with the government action of, like, scaling up PPE that we were originally promised. And so... Even if we were to, like, even if you were to look at the COVID response and say it actually doesn't matter that the goals were incoherent because the results were fine, you would still have some benefit for the next pandemic of being able to figure out how do we clearly communicate to the public what they should expect to see because that's going to give us an even higher sense of you know voluntarist commitment and behavioral change than what we got regardless of how regardless of whether it was more successful
1: than somebody what somebody else did But so, I mean, I think this timing question is intimately linked to what Herman said about the playbook not having a clear sort of goal, because I think that it became clear like pretty soon after the sort of original national springtime shutdown, right, was that What were we going to do, right? Were we going to stay at that level of restriction until a vaccine was available? Were we going to stay at that level of restriction until it pushed cases nationally to zero, despite – because at that time, we had spread. We were successful, I would say, in pulling down the tri-state area outbreak, you know, which was really, really bad. Right. And that came down. The restrictions on what people could do were fairly effective at preventing the exodus from New York from turning into a national huge epidemic. Right. Because like we didn't quarantine New York City, Um, but we kept having outbreaks at meatpacking plants and in prisons and jails. Right. At places where distancing was hard, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because the illness wasn't like truly, truly gone. So. There was, I think, clearly a sentiment from some people that like that that was unacceptable and that we should maintain April 2020 conditions, you know, just like until those numbers mechanically were pulled down. But the playbook didn't say that exactly. And there was nobody there was no there was no like mechanism for making some kind of choice about that. And as Herman said, it's like even the blue states would ping pong back into curve flattening mode once things got to a certain point. Um, and I think one reason for that is that the duration just would have been really, really long, especially because states felt apparently that they couldn't impose internal travel controls, right? right? So, I mean, I think one reason if you look at among the blue states, the states that did best, it's like Vermont, Maine, Washington, Hawaii, they're off in the corners of the country. Like, Literally. <laughs> um, and while Maine did not like prevent people from entering the state, they did for a long time in 2020 have some serious restrictions on hotel operations which sort of, in effect, stopped people from coming there. And Canada completely locked down its borders, right? Maine's surrounded by, by Canada. So there were just, like, fewer people coming in. And that's what the Asian suppression success stories all did, right? They didn't just use, like, domestic lockdown to suppress cases. They, you couldn't go to Taiwan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, places like that. They had very tough mandatory quarantines because that's the only... It's not totally clear. Like, Taiwan now is having a little bit of an outbreak uh, because they tried to ease up. But internally, they let themselves relax by closing their borders, you know, which we didn't want to do for sort of... um, States didn't want to do, and I think it might be unconstitutional uh, for, for them to do. So if you said you know look realistically like this is the best we can do that would be one thing uh, but also you know if you were to say again if we had a commission you would say look two things people didn't know about when they were coming up with these strategies was how successful remote work would be for white collar workers um how successful at least some people would claim remote school was Like, I would dispute that. But, you know, like we had this whole big school reopening debate and like obviously a premise in that was the idea that remote schooling was okay, Um, And then we had a much more rapid vaccine development timeline than we had ever had. So. American society would not have collapsed if we had kept everything closed uh, except for grocery stores all the way until. January 2021, um, it might have been too costly. But I think if you were thinking this through, like as recently as 2013, you would have been like, no, like that won't work, right? Like the, uh, the economy will completely collapse. People won't be able to do anything. The ability for like, we've been recording this podcast on Zoom for a long, long time, and lots of white collar people have been doing lots of stuff this way, means that you could consider Harder, longer lockdowns than I think you would have in the past, but the impact of that on people is very disparate based on their sort of class situation um, and attitudes toward you know um, various things in life, and you sort of you sort of have to think that through in an explicit way, I think, and not just kind of um, like hot takes. Like you, you need to like bring the stakeholders together and have a conversation.
2: Well, I think one one way we you You mentioned one way that I think we did actually fail at even flattening the curve, which was when we did have lockdowns, they had no clear goals as to what was supposed to they were supposed to accomplish in in the sense that like if you look at like Australia, for example, th- some some of their provinces were pretty clear in that like, look, Once we get to this level of cases, we'll start easing up restrictions. The U.S. didn't really have, like, a lot of states, some states follow these metrics here and there. But by and large, it was just like, we'll kind of reopen when it feels right. Which is, I think, in terms of, like, actually making the lockdown actionable just makes it way harder on people. Because it makes it feel like this is going to last for an indefinite period of time. When you give people a clear goal as to why this horrible restriction needs to be put in place, I think people are going to be more uh, amenable to that if if they know that there is like an endpoint here. I mean, the the other side of this is like during these lockdowns, we didn't even like we, we took very long to like build up testing. Even once we did build up testing, we didn't really use it for surveillance. Like we didn't really have genomic sequencing for like to see what what different variants there are until like the last few months, which is pretty, pretty awful. Um, but. But we definitely didn't use testing for, like, contact racing. We didn't build out those capacities. So, just to, like, say that, like, there were alternatives to just, like, locking down blindly and indefinitely. And other places like Taiwan, like Australia did those things. We just never really followed that through. And I think that hurt us even just on the basic premise of flattening the curve. Like, if we had those done those things, then I think we would have been more successful at, at just even the 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 I think the more conservative approach to the pandemic.
0: Let's let's take a break. Yeah, I really yeah.
2: Okay, should. and then and then and then, and then and then and then let's and then let's come to Dare.
0: Support
3: for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together, or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. b u r r o w dot com slash weeds for fifteen percent off burrow dot com slash weeds
0: so i i do really want to underline what herman is saying about the indefinity of this indefinite indefiniteness indefinitude um because i think that that like if you look at I think with hindsight, if you look at the way that the political argument over lockdowns developed in the States in spring 2020, you have a couple of things happening that I think are a little clearer in retrospect, one of which is that, like, it was not at the time really understood just how much the lockdown served as an inflection point for the spread of QAnon. And, like, we've seen... And, and and adjacent conspiracy theories about vaccines, about, you know, the real reason that the government wants to assert these kind of powers, et cetera, et cetera. And like, we've seen enough data points in the months after that to, I think, have a new understanding that what was happening in spring of 2020 wasn't just people who were previously politically active finding like a new bogeyman, but people who were in a state of like, disorientation, trying, feeling like they understood that something more nefarious was going on because it was so dislocating for them. But the other thing is that the sense of indeterminacy was really the, was the ballast for a lot of these arguments, both in terms of like the policy of it and in terms of just what people could expect, right? You would see a lot of people who weren't QAnoners being, you know, the small business owners and folks being like, we can't live like this forever. We shouldn't have these aggressive lockdown moves because we can't do this for the years and years and years that the pandemic is going to take. And that, you know, made that, that, seemed like an overly slippery, slopey argument at the time. But if you think about where people were saying like it was how long it was going to take for vaccines to get developed, you know, the um, the very cautious messages we were getting in 2020 that we should not expect anything to return to normal before, you know, t- mid, like mid-22, mid-2022 at the very earliest, the argument of I can do this, I can like be in a state of, you know, in like, in a crisis state for a certain amount of time, but if you're telling me I need to be in this crisis state forever, I'm going to have some questions about why you're doing this and if this is really reasonable and if this is an infringement on my freedoms, like, is a more common sense argument. And so as long as we're talking about the kind of failure to communicate what lockdown would have you know like like when when lockdown was supposed to come into play and come out of play i think that created a lot of medium and long term political problems in terms of giving a, a allowing some kind of common sense veneer to an anti lockdown movement that among its firmest adherents was either very, very much a partisan politics, we're going to, you know, like our state governor is a Democrat and our state legislature is Republican. And so we're, you know, like we're going to do the Wisconsin playbook and use this as a as a way to restrict the emergency powers of the governor or with these QAnon and QAnon-adjacent conspiracy theories about why they really want to keep you from being able to show your face outside.
1: So here's a a, a couple thoughts that that, that that I have on sort of t- takeaways from this. I mean, one, to Derek's point, but a, a little on the other side, like, I think governors of states with divided political allegiances need to take seriously the fact that political consensus is a binding constraint on what you can do. And that, you know, if you're the governor of Wisconsin and Wisconsin, you know, is like a 50-50 state in terms of, you know, people on the ground and has a Republican legislature, you need to have a meeting with the legislative leaders from both parties and whichever experts they want to call, like you call in your experts, but they bring their experts to the table too. And you have to work something out that you can agree on where you're not yelling at each other, that it will ultimately, even if it's a laxer policy, like if it's a laxer policy that the five of you can all stand together on a stage and be like, this is badger COVID, like, I think that's going to be a better result than fighting about things. And, you know, like, That's Donald Trump's biggest failing, personally, is that he would never in a million years consider, like, trying to operate by consensus or defer to other people's ideas. But then that, like, Trumpian spirit did, I think, like, trickle down to other political leaders who are much, who are, like, not crazy by temperament in the same way, but just became taken for granted that we were going to handle this you know, like a tax or budget issue where like you count the votes and, you know, you see what your lawyers tell you you can get away with because, and this is the next thing, is that I think that the blue governors consistently didn't think about what am I actually prepared to enforce, right? Like, like what, what do I really think about? Am I going to send cops to bust up house parties if I suspect that over 12, you know, people are gathered secretly? And if the answer to that is no... Which, like, I think it should be, no. Like, I think that there's a reason that nobody actually implemented that kind of draconian policy. Well, I mean,
0: they, you, they did for, like, a hot minute in New York against uh, Haredi Jews. And, like, that was a very good example of why nobody else tried that. Yeah, because it very I mean, obviously became a question of why are you targeting
1: this community? But it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, the house around the corner for me, I don't want to say they were constantly throwing parties this past winter. <laughs> but, like, they had more than than zero. Stop right?
2: snitching, Matt. And
1: I didn't call the cops on them. And if I had, the cops would have shown up. <laughs> and I think that that's fine. But you have to consider what the implications of that reality are for policy. Now, unenforced guidelines can still um, be meaningful, right? Because it's a signal to people about what goes on and, and, and what doesn't. But like I, per- I mean, this is my failing Like, I got very invested in indoor dining as a vector of transmission, Um, which, I mean, I think is valid given masks and blah, 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 blah. But if realistically the alternative to indoor dining is well, people just have a party at their house, then the public health benefit of like shifting that from the restaurants to the houses seems maybe a little less clear to me Um, and, it maybe doesn't. Maybe that's not a fight worth picking on quite the same level, um, you know. Or maybe that's not right. But like, those are the kind of questions you need to ask yourselves. Is like, what, like, what's the real bottom line here? Like, what am I actually willing to do? I mean, in in Wuhan, they were like welding people's doors shut uh, at at one point. To to like literally, you had to stay home. Um, and there's a case for that, you know, but like you sort of have to, you have to, you have to, you have to test your mettle in terms of like what it is you're actually willing to do and make policy that sort of takes that into account. You know, infamously we had like, you've got to wear a mask while you're walking out on the street. Um, which is like, nobody I think ever thought that had very large benefits, but it was like something you could you could do, right, as, like, the mayor of D.C. to, like, show you were very serious about COVID. And it didn't have any fiscal cost. It didn't, like, involve anyone actually doing anything. Um, And so, you know, maybe that's okay. But every time you... Signal like that. There's also counter signal. Like DC doesn't have like Republicans, so it's fine, and you can govern uh, totally disregarding whether there's going to be a backlash. But you know, there's another universe in which. People, because like people I know looked at those outdoor mask orders and they were like, I get it. It's solidarity. It shows how serious we are about this. But other people in other parts of the country who I know saw it the opposite that that's like, okay, these guys are totally off the rails. They're not paying any attention to the actual epidemiology or medical science here. They're just tossing off orders for no reason. And it's very, you know, discrediting if you don't operate in a way that like tries to get people bought in. If your strategy is going to rely on voluntary compliance, then like you need to you need to do things that might secure voluntary compliance and take some uh, reasonable estimate of how much compliance you're likely to get, which is probably why for like our next playbook, We should put more effort on vaccine manufacturing because like that doesn't require voluntary compliance. It requires money to like spend more in advance, to build the factories sooner, to waste money on factories for for doses that don't work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like those are things you can just do and then you save lives, uh, you know, sort of it's a sort of more like American way of war. Right. Then than to think that we're going to get everybody on board for like a huge collective response.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that like the I, I do want to underline the like the voluntary compliance thing as it relates to the politics, because I think that a lot of uh, people affiliated with the Democratic Party over the last half decade have really internalized the idea that it is both ineffective politically and morally wrong to think about how might this message be misinterpreted because you assume that the Republican Party is acting in bad faith, and so there's no set of good faith hoops you can jump through on your side that's going to prevent that outcome. But when we're talking about a voluntary compliance pandemic response, we're not just talking about, are Republicans in the Michigan State Legislature going to use this against us? We're talking about, is someone who is not into politics and who is not taking their cues on behavior from elite political leaders, um, or or rather from like, is not taking their cues on behavior from like, what does my side say? That person's Compliance with mask mandates, with, you know, indoor gathering mandates is just as important as the person who is super politically committed. And so it is worth kind of disconnecting a little bit from the idea of good faith, bad faith in the political context to think about, you know, when we require decisions to be made by a bunch of individuals who are uh, not going to, who are going to be motivated by things other than does my side say this is good, there really is a certain amount of worthwhileness in like clearly and accurately and honestly communicating what the goals are and what the science says. Sorry, Herman, you should talk about like vaccines and such.
2: Yeah, no, I, I was uh, to to add to what both of you are saying. It is I think one of the the reasons this this conversation about the next playbook is so important is because I think we might need a more radical rewriting of the playbook than, like, is being let on in in some circles necessarily. Because, like, we talked about, like, Taiwan's playbook versus the U.S.'s. I'm not sure, like, the the U.S.'s original playbook – well, it's not that I'm not sure. The U.S.'s original playbook clearly did not work very well. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths. So – if 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 the goal is to prevent anything like this from happening again, then maybe we should be thinking more through more like to, to Matt's point, it's like like in theory, social distancing sounds great. If in practice people are not actually following those precautions and finding every way to evade them, then we need something else. And like you see this in other aspects of public health. So like whether it's HIV or or drug use or or whatever, like ideally you, would, you don't want people injecting drugs. Like, it would be great if people don't do that. But the reality is, some people do that, no matter how much you tell them to just say no and whatever. So in, in public health, you've developed strategies like needle exchanges, you've developed strategies like naloxone distribution, like, like things that don't stop people from using drugs, but at least mitigate the harms from it. And I feel like so much more of our playbook whatever our next pandemic playbook is should be focused on essentially these kind of like harm reduction measures where it's like look it would be better if you're not indoor dining it would be better if you're not gathering in your home but if you are open a window if like and also if if officials want to take this further it's like during the winter obviously it's harder to go outside it's harder to open the windows maybe install like outdoor heating for people so they have a place to gather outdoors where they're less likely to transmit viruses and like you can go down the line with like these kinds of ideas and really just es- essentially just just say like ideally yes people would be social distancing they would be masking they would be doing whatever else might be needed for the next pandemic but like if people aren't going to do those things then we need to think a little more creatively i mean I think of the comparison to South Korea, for example. South Korea had these apps where that made it really easy to test, like uh, con- t- contact trace people because they followed your your every movement. Right? There is no way that Americans, even if those apps are required, are actually going to install those on their phones. Americans are fine with like Facebook secretly tracking their information, but once it's explicit, I think that's just like off the table completely. So it's just like, but but maybe there is some sort of app that like. I don't know, like, just tells people, like, what the best things to do are in certain settings, and like, a better way to develop, like, deliver public guidance that, like, helps you keep safe if you, you know you're going to do some sort of tricky activity. I don't know. I think one of the things here is that like this conversation is important because we need to actually think up of like harm reduction solutions for pandemics. And we haven't been really doing that kind of work in terms of like research and just talking this through and figuring out what would be possible in, a, in a, like in, in more conservative parts of the country that clearly did not want to do some of the bigger restrictions that more liberal places were willing to do.
1: So Ed Young uh, at The Atlantic, you know, has been like one of the, I think, like really vital um, pandemic writers uh, this past year. And he recently published a kind of opus that I recommend to everybody. Um, but in this case, because I think it's like, it's really wrong. Um, Like he basically says like his takeaway is like, aha, effective public health requires a high degree of collectivism, which individualistic America doesn't have. So in the future, we need to like re-engineer all of American society. Um, And I think that it's more like what Herman said, right? That it's like if public health professionals (laughs) view... Is that, like, what they would like is for American society to be more like South Korean society? Like, that's fine, but, like, they need to get over it and come up with a playbook that works for the society that we actually have, right? And I think that there is a real... um and the, the the harm reduction analogy with, with drugs I think is incredibly relevant because you can clearly see through what public health people um, feel like emphasizing this incredible fear that if you give people individualized advice about steps that they can take to improve their safety, that they will use those steps, right? And that is what they do not – want, right? This was part of the initial mask communication was this concern that people would get a false sense of security from the masks. So one thing that never sold out, like webcams were totally sold out for a while during this pandemic uh, because, you know, people wanted to look better on, on Zoom calls, but high quality HEPA filters never sold out because nobody ever wanted to say that getting good air filters reduces COVID transmission risk because nobody wanted to say it would be okay to have people come over to your house uh, because you were going to have these good air filters, which I agree with. To be clear, like, I, I, I agree that people should not be holding house parties and then relying on blue air filters to, to make it safe. That being said, people were holding parties. The right. I mean, right, and, 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 don't and it cost like, so, that and much.
0: And it also downstream meant that we had, across the country, countless district-by-district, state-by-state school reopening debates without any serious discussion of what investments in ventilation would be needed to make this school safe again, because that wasn't a part of the public health toolbox that had really percolated down to where those discussions were happening.
1: Well, and I would say worse. To the extent that we did have those discussions, they were these very dichotomous, here's what we need in order to make it safe rather than just, like, here are facts about the safety benefits of different measures, right? Because it's like, okay, like, what is safe and what isn't is, like, an interesting, almost like a metaphysical question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas, like, this measure reduces transmission risk by 5%. Uh, If it is layered with this other measure, it is triple the efficacy, right? Like, those are facts, The problem is, is that when you equip people with facts, they might reach a judgment that is not your judgment, right? They might say, given my personal health status and my values, I conclude that holding a Christmas dinner with one window cracked and some air filters and a lot of hand sanitizer is safe enough even though that does impose external costs on the rest of society. And like, that's Young's Mm. point, right? That like, we're too individualistic. Um, But like, I just would read it the other way. Like, we are in fact, very individualistic. And if you equipped people with better information, their behaviors would become safer at the margin. Whereas I don't just don't, I don't think that like Operation Scold was that effective not just because of the bad Republicans, but because of the enforcement issues in the blue states, right? That if it was flipped, if the uh, right-wing authoritarian party was also the party that felt strongly about public health restrictions, they might have pulled it off, right? Like I could imagine Donald Trump having quarantined Greater New York City, having called out the troops to crush the Floyd protests, right? That like liberals doing takes about how Trump was using this as a pretext uh, to seize power. Um, but there then being like public health people being like, no, 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 he's right. Like it, you could imagine that, but the, there's no way Democrats would do that. Like this was happening at the same time that people were like, we need to reimagine the concept of police, <laughs> right? So like, how are you going to have like a huge crackdown on people holding Christmas with their families? Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't make Sense, right? And so, if you're gonna be in a society that's very individualistic, um, if you're gonna be in a society where the more socialisty collectivisty political movement is also very skeptical of law enforcement, like you just like you have to you have to learn to live with that, right? And like give people information that they can use and try to do medical research because, like. Everybody uh, likes getting treatment once they are in the hospital for COVID. Um, Most people, particularly people in the more vulnerable population groups, are in fact getting vaccinated, right? Like that really worked. Um, America doing vaccine research uh, was a very potent tool. And if we were able to uh, generate doses at quadruple the speed, We would run out of Americans to vaccinate, but we could have saved a lot of lives over this past winter and we could be saving lives around the world. And like, we'd be saying, I mean, we're saying now, like that's been America's greatest contribution to COVID has been mRNA vaccines. And like, we could have done better there. And I don't think there is a like fundamental partisan or cultural impediment uh, to spending more money on vaccination.
2: I think uh, one thing here is that I've talked to a lot of public health people Uh, over the years like even before this pandemic I was covering a lot of public health issues and I think one thing they've struggled with here is that they're just in a very different mind space than much of the country Um, so I've I mean we've I think we've all heard people who are like I would rather die than like restrict my life like I would rather get sick with COVID and potentially die if that's what it means to like continue living my life as normal and like to a public health person, this—the the average public health person—that sounds like that. That person is an alien from another planet to them. But I think it's—it's it's like to to the point of like this: if we live in an individualist society where people just have completely different values than you do, you have to acknowledge that. Like the ultimate goal of public health is to s- uh, serve the public and save as many lives as possible. That's it. And if like like you know what, it it, it might be the case that if America was very collectivist, like the next pandemic would go. Like great, like much better than this one, but that's just not the the place we live in. And if you're serious about saving lives, you have to like acknowledge that. And and I think that's that's the big thing here. Even if it means doing things that you're uncomfortable with, then you have to do like things differently. I, I mean, I've I've visited needle exchanges for expo- for example, where they give out sterile syringes to people who use drugs, and like I've talked to some of the staff, they would love if everyone they're serving, like their clients stop using drugs and they're uncomfortable with to to any degree they might be enabling their continued drug use but they acknowledge that like if we didn't do this these people would be sharing needles they would be getting hepatitis and hiv and that would be a much worse outcome than what we have now and i I think we just really need to start looking at the pandemic and other public health issues more in this way
1: um should we take a break and talk about
0: (laughs) it it? yeah
2: (laughs) yep so, this week's paper is um, by Adriana Cordor, Waldron and Janet Curry. It was published in MBER and basically it looks at the effects of addiction treatment facilities. What, what happens when you open them up, close them down? It looked particularly at New Jersey and it found that where you have more addiction treatment, um, you essentially have fewer ER related visits, particularly overdoses. So, specifically, in They looked at zip codes, and and, and these zip codes were a facility closed, drug-related ER visits increased by 16%. Where they opened, they decreased by almost 10%. So just based on that, the the conclusion is pretty obvious here. It's like if you you have an addiction treatment facility in your area, you have fewer overdoses and other ER visits related to drugs. If you don't have a treatment facility in your area, you're more likely to have problems with drugs. And I think this is particularly relevant now because I, I think one thing that has escaped us in, in the past years, a lot of things seem to have gone horribly, is that the opioid epidemic is another area that has gone even much worse. Uh, I was looking at the numbers this morning and like every time I look at these numbers, they're like shocking to me. We're now at almost uh, through November in the, the year preceding November, we had more than 90,000 drug overdose deaths. That is up 25 percent from the previous year. And that is like a, a record for drug overdose deaths ever in the U.S. Like we've we've never had more than 90,000 drug overdose deaths in the span of one year. And there are many reasons for that, which you can talk about. I think it's it's largely related to people being isolated and uh, addiction treatment services shutting down. But at least this paper suggests that as like we move back to normal, we have a solution for this. And this is something that public health officials have, and experts have been saying for a long time. Like unlike the old... Uh, Unlike a lot, a lot of these other problems with the opioid epidemic, we actually do have some good policy solutions. It's just a matter of investing in them, taking this issue seriously, and so forth. And uh, yeah, this paper suggests that they're right. Like opening more treatment does does help out in a lot in this in this area.
0: So one of the you know th- this this paper is kind of situating itself in a lot of research about like or a lot of kind of discussion about what sort of facilities are most effective in reducing, you know, in, in successfully treating opioid addiction. And there is a lot of like, you know, there there's there a, a strong preference in the literature for like medically assisted or medication assisted treatment. Um, and, you know, that requires a certain kind of facility that is more medicalized, right, where you have like an actual like a doctor overseeing things, rather than it being largely counseling staff. But the while this paper like is clear that they couldn't for one thing this paper is clear that they couldn't do a really rigorous comparison of those because in New Jersey where their data set is there aren't enough medically assisted medication assisted treatment centers and there aren't even a ton of residential centers as opposed to outpatient which is another kind of place where the literature s- suggests that you know it that inpatient residential centers are more effective like which itself is suggestive because it indicates that what is, you know, the the kind of best practices industry ideal isn't actually out there in, you know, in like it is there aren't enough of those beds out there to really make a to to really make the question is it better to have residential or outpatient? The question is is an outpatient facility ineffective enough that it's okay not to have one at all? And there, this paper strongly suggests that no, it's it's much better to have even like even non-medication-assisted, even outpatient, you know, the things that are generally considered to be, like, less ideal still have a very strong impact in terms of whether people who are, you know, whether the kind of marginal opioid user who, if this facility closed, won't be able to get a bed in another one because there is a bed shortage regardless, you know, is going to be able to get help. And the reason that I find this interesting, Herman, is that I know you've done some, like, real some some great investigative work on the rehab industry and the you know the f- pieces like the ones you've done often end up kind of suggesting that this is that the variance in treatment is so wide that a lot of people are being harmed by an industry that purports to help them. And I'm wondering how you square that with findings like this one, which pretty strongly suggests that the benefit of just having a, like, having a treatment facility, even in a zip code that already has a bunch, is pretty high because when, you know, because... The places where treatment centers were closing still had other treatment centers available, and ER visits still went up a bunch. And that opening up centers in places where they aren't decreases ER visits substantially. Like, I'm wondering how you square the idea that, you know, a, that there is a wide degree of variance and a lot of very, you know, a certain amount of under-regulation and exploitation going on in this industry with the kind of bottom line finding that is presented here, which is a pretty stark, no really any treatment facility is better than none.
2: Well, I think one thing I would say is that this, in that regard, is this study was done in New Jersey, which does, I don't want to say they do a great job regulating addiction treatment because basically no state really does, but they do a generally better job in terms of that i would be curious if you looked at a place like florida which has seen some like really fraudulent awful practices in the past few years like the notoriously it's called like the florida shuffle where if you go to south florida you just get thrown from like treatment facility to treatment facility and your experiences is, is i mean i've talked to people who've gone through this and it's just uh i would not even call those treatment facilities So, so i'm sure there's like a the base, basically, just to say that there's a floor here, probably, like, your your treatment facility probably has to meet some level of quality that this study, I mean, maybe because it was New Jersey, maybe because it wasn't just looking closely at, like, individual facilities, um, maybe it just wasn't strong enough to to capture that. But besides that, I mean, like, yeah, I think even, like, when, when we're talking, for example, about outpatient versus residential treatment, one thing you find in the research is that, like, everybody, when they say rehab, they think residential but if you actually look at the research, outpatient facilities do just as well as residential facilities, and one and and you know that might seem surprising at first. But when you think about just about any other medical problem, where do you get most your medical care? It's in outpatient facilities. Like that's that's you only end up at the hospital when things are really really bad, and it's the same thing with um, these other with with drugs like outpatient is good it serves most people's needs in fact you would prefer to treat people in outpatient but at a certain point people might get bad enough where they need residential and that i think is where um where this study speaks, it's like, look, you you should just put as many treatment facilities in your area. Because as long as this treatment is accessible, then people can get caught early in the process before they get to that point where they need hospitalization equivalent, like residential treatment. Then they can like then you can catch them when their drug addiction might not be as, as, as advanced or, or like as bad as it could be. And like what if you catch people in those early stages you might do a lot of work to reduce the harms because it is probably people in more advanced stages who are who are more likely to overdose more likely to do other things like commit crimes to to get money to get drugs and and so on and that's when you'll start seeing like really the social benefits of this all
1: I mean the other thing about outpatient I mean I, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm not a researcher but when I when I see research supporting outpatient treatment I will I will speculate I mean my my experience of um, quitting smoking, which is not as short-term deadly, but I think it is very addictive, is that it's relatively easy to stop the addictive behavior under a sort of highly controlled circumstance. And what's harder is life, right? And so things where you can get treatment that is less different from living your life can have more um, even, even more sort of extra validity, you know, in terms of like actually giving you the help that you need, as opposed to giving you help that only works in the sort of on its own terms, right? Um, you know, because... Uh, that's that's like the the challenge of addiction, right is is getting a treatment getting something that will really take and help you sort of over the over the longer haul um, it is it is too bad that this is only a look at New Jersey which has a sort of a stronger reputation uh, because the question with lots of things you know is about scaling like I, I know findings in charter schools tend to show that the states that have the fewest, charter schools have really good charter schools and they're really highly effective and it would be very beneficial for them to open more, but that the places that have created lots and lots of charter schools, the marginal charter school is actually really bad. Um, You know, and so there's always, there's always like that kind of dilemma around trying to scale up efficacious public institutions. Like the Florida drug rehab is terrible, um, but there's a lot of it. You know, which right. like in this case is like actually not beneficial. Like giving people ample access to treatments that are ineffective is not helpful. Um, but you want to try to investigate like where is that like where is that margin? What's interesting about outpatient facilities being effective in New Jersey, at least, is that it's uh, easier to you know create them. Right. So you can you can get more bang for your buck there. Um, But you want to try to investigate, like, where do you cross that threshold where you don't want to just say more, 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 more. Uh, But like until you're there, like, yeah, like like New Jersey should open up a lot more outpatient treatment facilities. Uh, But like we still need to know what's up with Florida.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the states that have taken this really seriously, like Vermont has basically take like it, it's done generally better in terms of dealing with the opioid ep- epidemic than it's like New England peers and I think one reason for that is it really took this challenge seriously very early on and just opened up like a statewide system of, of addiction treatment facilities they're like really focused towards medications for opioid addiction which are proven to be the most effective and like it they they have facilities all over the place I think one of the saddest lines in this study that like most people might not even pick up on is just that it excludes places that don't have any treatment facilities at all because obviously you can't study how a facility opening or closing there has any effect i mean there like that's bad like it is like if if you didn't have like any access to medical care in your county just for for any other kind of health issue that would generally be considered bad obviously not not every place has like the best hospitals in the country but it is just to say that like there should be a push to like make this as accessible as possible everywhere. And that, like Vermont, which is r- very rural, has taken steps to do that. I don't think other states have done, uh, taken steps to do that. We certainly haven't done it at the national level. And that's why this kind of study is possible to begin with, which I think speaks to just how much, how bad access to treatment can be in, in the first place.
1: All right. All right. Uh, with that, uh, thank you, Herman. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Janakis. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Friday.